Welcome to our study week. Obviously, because of the ongoing pandemic, we can't meet in person in Buckfast, but we've put together four lectures on St Thomas's theology on different parts of the summer. For most people who have been to Buckfast before, this should hopefully be familiar to us. Um, but each evening, via Zoom, we'll have an opportunity to ask questions of the lecturers, both introductory questions about St Thomas's theology and any other questions that you have based on the lectures. Over this weekend, it would be good if we try to keep some of the spiritual aspect of the study week. We won't have the opportunity to pray with the monks as we normally do at Buckfast, and we won't be able to meet in person, and we won't be able to worship together in person. But after each of the Q&As, we'll have the opportunity to either pray Compline together or to pray a rosary together. And I'd encourage you to follow the liturgy here in Oxford, which is live streamed um, from the Priory. Part of the beauty of the study week is that over the week we perform something of a Dominican community. We pray together, we eat together and we study together. So I'd encourage you to join us for our online liturgies. So to introduce our first speaker, Father Richard Conrad is the director of the Aquinas Institute here in Oxford and also a, le- a lector here at Blackfriars in dogmatic theology. He'll be talking to us about the Holy Trinity and the Prima Pars. In this first lecture of the Not at Buckfast Summer School for this year, I meant to give you an introduction to the Prima Pars of St. Thomas's Summer Theologiae. Obviously, I can't go into every detail. I need to pick out some key points that are worth pondering on, and I've given you a handout which will contain some extra notes and some diagrams and some further reading if you want to pursue this further or need an insomnia cure. What I chiefly want to refer to is a mistake in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy where it is said that the answer to life, the universe and everything is 42, and I hope by the end of this lecture you'll realise that is wrong. Slightly wrong. Julie Andrews tells us to start at the very beginning, so I shall start by mentioning what's in the prologue of the Prima Pars, the prologue to the whole summer. St Thomas says that the teacher of Catholic truth has to instruct both the professionals, so to speak, and the beginners. But I think the beginners he has in mind for the Summa Theologiae are people starting more or less a first degree in theology who've done both general studies already and philosophy. And in his book Teaching Bodies, Mark Jordan points out I think very helpfully, that they already know the Christian faith, they know the scriptures, from the liturgy they celebrate the sacraments, they know about the saints, they are already partly formed and they are to be formed more deeply in pondering the mysteries of faith with Christ as the great exemplar. And I guess St Thomas expected people to spend significantly more than a year working through his course of theology. I think he gears his summer partly to people who will go on to be expert theologians and partly to people who will go into the field as preachers and confessors. That might explain, to some extent, the prominence of moral teaching and spiritual teaching in the summer. The first question of the summer is about sacred teaching, sacra doctrina, which I think is the whole business of handing on doctrinal, moral and spiritual instruction. And in the first two articles, St Thomas points out that God knows what he's up to and the saints and angels in heaven share his knowledge of himself and what he's up to 
but we who are on pilgrimage need to be told by revelation what God is up to and we accept what God tells us on his own authority, obviously for very good reasons. And we explore the beauty of what God is doing. That's a recurring theme in the summer, the conveniencia, the supreme fittingness, the beauty, you might say, of what God is doing for our salvation. And to accept what God tells us, we need, it turns out, not just the virtue, the strength of mind, that is faith, we will need the gifts of the Holy Spirit, like insight, to have a feel for the beauty of the Christian faith. In Article 7 of the first question of the summer, St Thomas says that the subject of sacred teaching is God. Different people had given different suggestions for what the subject of sacred teaching is, but Thomas is theocentric. In fact, I will hope to show trinitocentric, to coin a new word. Sacred teaching is either about God himself or how everything comes from God and finds its goal in God. And many people have pointed out that pattern of exitus and reditus, coming from God and returning to God, a scheme that seems to come from Pseudo-Dionysius, who St Thomas thought was a disciple of St Paul, as everyone did in those days. And in one sense, that gives you the structure of the summer. The first part is about God and the coming of creation from God. And then the second part and the third part are about the return of creatures to God. In particular, the second part explains what a fallen, rational creature must do the journey on which he or she must be led by the Holy Spirit to return to God. And in the third part we find Christ is the way. And he comes to us in the sacraments. And if Thomas had finished the summer, we would have ended with an account of the last things and our resting eternally in God. But I think we need to say more about the structure of the summer, and in particular of the first part, and that's part of the theme of this lecture. But before we go on, I should mention that in Article 9 of the first question, St Thomas says we need to use metaphors when talking about God, things like parables, images, poetry, and so on. And we need to use lots of metaphors, including, including the many earthy ones which are found in Scripture. Because that reminds us that God transcends all images and metaphors. I think St Thomas often, throughout the summer, leaves us to do some work ourselves to fit together the various bricks he gives us into a beautiful edifice or to fit the bits of the jigsaw into one picture. And I think he often leaves us to work out what is a metaphor or image and what is something more literal, to which I'll come back fairly soon. The second question deals with the existence of God and that's where St Thomas gives us the five ways of proving that God exists. They are presented very laconically to the bewilderment of many scholars. I think that's because St Thomas presumes his students have met the five ways in much greater detail 
in previous philosophical courses. And they are a springboard for an exploration of God, which I think is not really philosophical, but is much more scriptural. We are exploring what scripture tells us about the one God, he who is. In question three, and he comes back to it in question 11, St. Thomas speaks about the simplicity or the unity of God. There is a unity to God which transcends all the different unities we find among creatures. So, hear, O Israel, Adonai, our God, Adonai is one, is a key theme of the Prima Pars. Then we find in question four that God is perfect. All the various perfections, the nobilities and beauties, the goodness and truth and all that, all the perfections of creatures participate in God's supreme perfection, that is to say they resemble and reflect God's perfections in various limited ways. So creatures are like God, but God does not resemble creatures. We should be very wary of picturing God as if he were literally, say, a great mind, like a benign version of the great intelligence in the Doctor Who stories. God transcends all our thoughts and concepts. We hear then that God is good in a transcendent way. God and God alone is supremely eternal and immutable. So we learn from questions 2 to 11 of the Prima Pars how different God is from the world and anything in it. As Isaiah 40 says, to what will you compare me, says the Lord. It might then seem that we can't know God and may as well stop writing theology at that point. So question 12 of the Prima Pars says that we can know God. We can know God now not by knowing the essence or nature of God, but by knowing better what God is up to. But in the life to come, in the beatific vision, we will, by God's grace, know what God is. As scripture says, we will see him as he is. God will, so to speak, blow our mind so that we can receive not truths about God, but God who is truth. And so St Thomas goes on in question 13 to say that we can talk about God and not just by metaphors and imagery. We can speak literally about God, but by what he calls analogy. So Herbert McCabe puts it rather bluntly. When we speak metaphorically about God, we know what we mean but don't mean what we say. When we speak analogically about God, we mean what we say and don't know what we mean. So we say, the Lord is my rock, speaking metaphorically, and we have in mind something solid and dependable and British like the Rock of Gibraltar. God, of course, is not literally a lump of granite, nor even literally British. He is literally Jewish. So we know what we mean, we know what a rock is, but we don't literally mean God is a lump of granite. 
But when I say God is good, I do mean what I say. God is one, God is good, and so on, are literally true, but we don't know what we mean. God's goodness, God's beauty, God's love, far transcend all we can comprehend. And you'll find some little diagrams in the handout to try to flesh out that point. Also in question 13, St Thomas says that the best name we have for God is he who is. That comes from Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals his sacred name to Moses. And that's unpacked in the Hebrew as I am who am, and in the Greek translation, I am the one who is. And arguably, the Hebrew name itself means that God, God alone truly possesses being, and God, God alone, can grant it to all creatures. So there is something very scriptural in what St Thomas says there. And the third way of proving that God exists, in fact, begins with us wondering at the being of things and recognising that only God truly possesses being and truly can grant it. The summer continues with St Thomas explaining that God knows things and loves them, but his knowledge is not a response to creatures, it is creative. His love is not a response to creatures, but creative. God loves things into being and loves them into their growth. And then we hear that God's mercy is more fundamental than his justice. And justice is something of a metaphor when we speak about God. His mercy is his proactive love, bringing us into being and relieving all our deficiencies. But really we have no rights before God. To speak of God's justice is to speak really of the beauty of his ways. And we end that section on God as one with a question number 26 on the bliss or happiness of God. And Rowan Williams, in a paper in New Blackfriars, What Does Love Know?, brought out how everything that happens in that first bit of the Prima Pars prepares for what happens next, the treatise on the Holy Trinity. So, in questions 27 to 42, St Thomas explores, expounds the Christian faith in God as Trinity. Like all the medieval theologians, he drew chiefly on St Augustine, and like all of them, he tweaked St Augustine in various ways, following hints that Augustine himself had given as he developed his understanding of the Trinity in the De Trinitate, which took him a long time to write. One of the models, so to speak, that Augustine gives us to gain some purchase on the Trinity is the human mind with its knowledge and its love. And that's the model that St Thomas picks up. But St Thomas presents it in a very tentative way. He introduces it in a very laconic, low-key way at the beginning of this treatise on the Trinity. 
And if we put together what he says throughout this treatise and what he says later in question 93, then we can say, we can produce a kind of model, metaphor, image for the Trinity, where I know myself, obviously partially, but I know myself so I produce within my mind a kind of concept or idea of myself, which is from my mind, but still in my mind, is in a sense one with my mind, things that I know I have in mind, and my concept of myself matches myself in a limited way. So there's already a sense of growing equality, movement from unity with distinction. In fact, when I remember myself or remember anything, it's as if I produce a kind of word or inner expression of what I possess in mind. And so we can picture God the Father knowing himself so as to produce a perfectly co-equal word who is the Father's perfect image, who is from the Father, co-equal to the Father, perfectly expresses the Father, but remains within the divine realm. We get a little tiny glimpse of how it is with the Trinity, but also a little glimpse of what it is for God to send his word to become flesh. Because if I know myself and my plans, then I can express myself to my friends and say, I am like this, I want that, I share myself with my friends, and when the word becomes flesh and dwells among us, that is God the Father sharing himself with us, speaking his word into the world, telling us about and enacting his plan of salvation. There are some rather inadequate drawings of this in the handout. But then if I know myself, if I have an idea of myself, I will also love myself. Within the human mind, we have a power to know and a power to love, which we call the will. I can produce a kind of impulse or spiritus of love. And my love matches what or whom I love in a very different way from knowledge. When I know chocolate cake, I take in the knowable aspect of chocolate cake and have a concept of it. When I love chocolate cake, there is a kind of impulse going out towards it, which matches the chocolate cake, in my case in an exaggerated way. If I knew myself perfectly, I would love myself properly and have a proper valuing of myself. So from and within the mind, there come forth concepts, interior words, and impetus, impulses of love. And I, because I love myself, want to share myself with my friends, it's in love that I go out to share myself with them and to invite a return of love. 
God the Father loves himself perfectly with a co-equal spiritus, a divine impulse of love who proceeds from him with, with and through his word. And it's in that Holy Spirit, that eternal love, that the word is made flesh and dwells among us so that from his fullness we may always receive and we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the grace of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. The Father is speaking to us as his friends out of love, not just to invite but to create a return of love in us, to impart charity, a friendship with God. So in our human experience we have something that can give us some tiny purchase on the Divine Trinity and part of what we can say, which St Thomas says, is that from all eternity we are foreknown in the divine word. Rather as I know and express my plans in my interior word, the Father expresses himself and us in his divine word, his Son. And just as I love people in my will, so in the Holy Spirit, the Father and the Son eternally love and rejoice in, not just themselves and each other, but in us. We are creatively foreknown in the divine word, creatively foreloved in the Spirit, who is love proceeding. God is like the artist who conceives beforehand what she will craft and delights in what she will craft. God, the Father, conceives us and delights in us, in his word and spirit, eternally. All of that is, of course, to be said very tentatively. We are not saying that God is simply a big mind in which the Father is the mind, the Son is the knowledge and the Spirit is the love. Augustine and Aquinas are quite clear that it's, the Trinity is much, much more than that. Still, we get some little sense that we can gain some theological purchase on the Holy Trinity with images like that, models like that. It also reminds us that this treatise on the Trinity, questions 27 to 42, is preparing us for what comes next. Karl Rahner, who I think in lots of ways has the right instincts, thought that St Thomas had had something of a negative influence on the history of the doctrine and devotion of the Holy Trinity because he thought that this treatise on the Trinity, which he thought was questions 27 to 43, was self-contained and the structure of St. Thomas's summer led theologians to lock the treatise on the Trinity up into ever more splendid isolation, making it irrelevant to the history of salvation and the life of grace. Rana was formed, as many priests and theologians were in his time, by manuals, textbooks of theology, 
which often were rather more dry and unadventurous than Augustine or Aquinas or all the greatest theologians. And Rana's complaint might be true about manual, some manuals of theology, but in fact is not true about St Thomas. I think question 43 of the Prima Pars is the great hinge question. It is the hinge, the transition from the treatise on the Holy Trinity as it is in itself to everything that follows, the treatise on creation and the whole treatises on salvation in the Secunda and Tertia Pars. Question 43 says it is on the missions of the Son and the Spirit, the Father sending his Son and his Spirit into the world. In fact, it's on more than that. We find that each of the divine persons, Father and Son, and Holy Spirit, each of them wants to give himself to us to be known and loved, possessed and enjoyed now and forever. That's a remarkable claim. Each divine person wants to give himself to us to be known and loved, possessed and enjoyed now and forever. That is why God the Holy Trinity goes out in the work of creation and the work of salvation. Question 43 is the answer to life, the universe and everything. It is why there is a universe and us and the angels in it and why God guides it in the way he does. So the answer to life, the universe and everything is not 42, it's 43. And it goes with the idea that God, the creator, is also our friend. Jesus says, I call you not servants, but friends. And St. Thomas is struck by that. And it seems that as he was writing the second part of the summer, he was rereading Aristotle's Ethics, which is itself struck by the importance of friendship in human fulfilment. Friendship is even more important than justice for human well-being. And so St Thomas, talking about charity, starting in Secunda Secunda 23, defines it as the friendship between humanity and God. All human beings who are crafted by the Holy Spirit in charity all those who are in a state of grace, are literally friends of God. And if Aristotle is to be believed, friendship implies a kind of reciprocity and a kind of equality. And there is that between us and God. We are lifted up, as St Peter tells us, to be sharers in the divine nature, a phrase that Thomas repeatedly repeats. We remain creatures and yet we are lifted up to be friends, to be made divine, something which all the church fathers were excited by. And there is a reciprocity you might expect from what happens earlier in the Prima Pars that God 
who is the source of all being, is absolutely first, action can only be in one direction from God to us. And yet, it is clear, it is made clear by St Thomas that God empowers us, so to speak, to act on him, to embrace God, as it were, by knowledge and love. There is that reciprocity between us and God. So, what's most important in Prima Pars 43 is that there is a new way of God being present in the world as known and loved. In fact, that's hinted at already in question 8 of the Prima Pars. God is present in the world in two ways. God is present as acting on the world, holding all things in being, moment by moment, by his creative knowledge and love. But we're going to look at, later on, a radically different way in which God is present in the world, as the known in the knower and the beloved in the lover. And that's what we begin to explore in Prima Pars 43, It will come up again in the following parts of the summer, in the Treatise on Grace, in Prima Secunde 110, we will find that God as creator gives us our own goodness and being, but he also wants to give us his own goodness and being, which is an act of friendship a special love that we can call grace. So there is something remarkable going on which should amaze us. Augustine had introduced this reflection on the missions of the Son and the Spirit And in the 19th century, Matthias Josef Schaben, a creative neo-scholastic, expands on what St. Thomas says, and there were little bits of that in the handout. Basically, the Father sends his Son and his Spirit because eternally they are from him, and that eternal coming is projected into the world. And that can be put in a kind of diagram. So in the eternal life of God, the Father begets his Son, utters his word, The Son is from the Father as his word and image. And in the eternal life of God, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and and through the Son as love and gift. And it's worth noting that St. John Paul II explored the spirit as love and gift in his encyclical Dominum et Vivificantem. But then, in the course of time, the Father sends his Son into the world. So, I'm afraid I can't draw human beings very well. Cats are slightly easier. Jesus Christ is the Word become flesh. The Word 
translated, so to speak, into human form. And he abides among us full of grace and truth. He is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so that from his fullness may we all receive. And the Spirit is sent to us. And the Spirit is sent visibly in things like the dove at Pentecost, which I can't draw, but then many Christian artists also fail to draw the Spirit very well as the dove. But this will have to represent the fires of Pentecost. But of course, the dove and the fire are not incarnations, simply symbols of the Spirit. So the Word is present in the world in a new way, in the human nature that he took and retains. But, for St Augustine, and St Thomas expands on that, there are the invisible missions. Because of the Incarnation and the Passion and Resurrection at the centre and culmination of human history, Throughout history, the Son and the Spirit are sent invisibly to all those who are made friends of God. So, into us, as we become friends of God. The Word is sent to shape us, so to speak, in wisdom. The divine word is the divine wisdom proceeding from the Father, and he comes to abide in us, shaping us in wisdom, that divine perspective on things that gives us a feel for what does and doesn't really matter, and so on. And the Holy Spirit comes to us through Christ's saving work to form us in charity. To form us, shape us, fire us in that divine love which he is. So the divine trinity, so to speak, unfolds to us in the history of salvation, and in the life of grace. So there are these new effects of God, the incarnation and the life of grace, but the ultimate purpose is that by wisdom and charity we ourselves lay hold on the Divine Trinity. We possess Father and Son and Spirit who give themselves to us to be known and loved, possessed and enjoyed. <coughs> and so there is something very Trinitarian and very wonderful about the whole unfolding of the history of salvation. It is the divine persons giving themselves to us in new ways, in the incarnation, in the life of grace, and in the possession of God, known in a certain sense in this life by faith, brought alive by love, not by dead faith, known in a sense by wisdom and possessed and rejoiced in by charity. We need to add that the Son and the Spirit in a sense bring each other. The Word, the wisdom become flesh, gives us the Holy Spirit who is charity and the Holy Spirit, overshadowing us, crafts us in wisdom, 
in likeness, conformity to Christ, the divine wisdom. There's a kind of complex interaction which is brought out in the Catechism of the Catholic Church in items 687 to 689. So that is just something about the riches contained in that hinge question, 43. Then a kind of whistle-stop tour in just a few minutes of the rest of the prima pars. Questions 44 to 49 are about creation in a general sense. God, and only God, gives being to all things in such a way that there is no competition between God and creatures. Obviously, creatures can get in the way of each other. We can compete for space. If you put an electric kettle on the gas, then you might ask how much of the boiling of the water is due to the gas and how much to the electricity. But God holds in being all things with their powers and their actions. God is, so to speak, enabling, not taking us over like a puppeteer. We find that God is the ultimate efficient and formal and final cause, which is Trinitarian. You can attribute to the Father bringing things into being, to the divine word, the structures and beauties of things, and to the Holy Spirit, their directedness, their dynamic towards their fulfilment. And so, of course, we find footprints, vestigia of the Trinity, throughout creation. The creation is complex. It has to reflect the one God, the one and triune God, and no creature can reflect God perfectly. So creation is complex with many different kinds of things, each reflecting the Holy Trinity in its own way. And we will find in the treatise on the creation of the material world, 65 to 74, that everything in the world is for its own good and for the beauty of the whole cosmos and to make the cosmos a fitting home for us and for the glory of God. Before that, there's a treatise on the angels who are also made for friendship with God, but they progress to God by one very firm act of will the next instant after their creation, or they fall away from him irrevocably. The treatise on the material creation is very much bound up with medieval cosmology, but there's one interesting point that I think is worth plucking out of it. At the very first instant of creation, Thomas thinks, God brings into being the angels, relatively unformed matter, time, and the Empyrean heaven. Outside the visible stars, there was a kind of circle of light, the Empyrean heaven, which was there from the beginning to be the home for the glorified human body. The cosmos was set up partly in view of our eternal glory. We'd have to translate that into modern terms. That would be a difficult task. But the whole creation is at least partly in view of our coming to rest, sharing God's glory in mind and body.
but then questions 75 to 92 are on the human being, which stands in the middle of the cosmos. St Albert, Thomas's teacher, said, the human being is in the middle of creation, between matter and spirit, between time and eternity. We contribute to the perfection of the whole by our unique place in the scheme of things. <clears throat> but question 93 is very telling. It's on the goal of the creation of the human being. What is the purpose of God creating us? That's what it says. It's about the human being as the image of the Holy Trinity. But that is something dynamic. To say that we are in the image of the Trinity is to imply a dynamic built into us. St Thomas gets that from St Augustine, from the mature St Augustine. So it seems to me that part of what I've been saying so far is to do with models. We need metaphors, images, images, models of God and his ways. And to think of the human mind with its knowledge and love is to have a model which gains us some very limited purchase on the divine trinity. And of course we are familiar from modern science of the need to use complementary models to gain some purchase on mysterious things. But for Augustine and for St Thomas, to say that we are in the image of God is to go in the other direction. It's not saying that you can learn something about God from the human being, that's true, that's using us as a model, but to say that we are in the image of God is more to say we learn something about ourselves and our purpose and destiny and nature in the light of the Holy Trinity. So for Augustine and for St Thomas, the image of God is meant to progress from one degree of glory to another. All human beings are in the image of God by nature. We are created with a mind with its power to know and its power to love, which reflect the coming of the Word and the Spirit from the Father. But the image is raised to a new degree of glory in the life of grace, when already in the life of faith brought alive by love and in wisdom, we have some mental purchase on God. And already we embrace God as he is by charity. Because God knows himself and delights in himself and in the life of grace we have the first hints of a knowledge of God and we delight in God. We image the Holy Trinity to a higher degree and the image is brought to its perfection, to what it's always meant to be, in the life of glory, where we do know God as he is, and so delight in God with even greater love. So, question 93 seems to match question 43. 
Father, Son and Spirit want to give themselves to us to be known and loved, possessed and enjoyed. And so they make us, in Augustine's and Thomas's phrase, capax dei, capable of God, with a mind, an intellect and a will, which can be expanded by grace to image God, the Trinity, more and more perfectly as we are led into the life of glory. So the goal of the creation, the purpose of the creation of the human being, is that we should reflect the Holy Trinity by embracing the Holy Trinity. And that is very exciting, overwhelming. The rest of the Prima Pars talks first about the unfallen state of humanity as envisaged by God. And in it, there is one interesting little um, point in question 95, article 4, ad primum. St Thomas says that before the fall, we needed grace as much as we do now. The chief purpose of grace is to raise the human being from being a creature to being a sharer in the divine nature. That grace was given to Adam and Eve and lost and is restored. And of course, when it comes to us, it has to do more than raise us to share the divine nature. It also has to heal our sinfulness. But grace is chiefly for bringing about that journey into God that was part of the which was the main purpose of creation at the beginning. And then the remainder of the first part is about God's governing, God's guiding and ruling of the cosmos and the place of the angels in that, who help us in various ways. But there is a dignity about the human intellect and the human will that they are open to God. And in a sense, God alone, no angel can get directly into our mind, though they can give us all sorts of holy thoughts through our imaginations. And no angel can get inside our will. Only God is at work and present within intellect and will giving us the knowledge that he wants to give, though normally he teaches us through the senses in this life, and only God is in the will, giving us charity. So there's a lot more that one could say about the Prima Pars, but the whole thing seems to me to be set up to be a treatise on the unfolding of the Holy Trinity and preparing us for the second and third part where we find in what ways the Holy Spirit is given to us to craft us in love and in likeness to Christ. And then in the third part we find how the Word become flesh is the source to us of the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we can journey in Christ to the fulfilment that was eternally in God's mind and in the Word and the Spirit. God is the artist conceiving beforehand what he will craft us into and delighting in the finished project. Thank you.